On today's episode of Securiosity, a big-time election vendor speaks their mind on DEF CON's voting village and the calls from Capitol Hill to embrace security research. We're talking to Adam Rogus from NSA, one of my Mach 37 portfolio companies, helps secure small online shops from things like chargebacks and dropshipping. CVE flaws, FIN7 returning, and all the vulnerability disclosure discussion you can handle. Welcome to Securiosity. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Securiosity. I'm Greg Otto. I'm Jenna Daniel. Greg, it seems like we finally got our week where things slow down. Yes, finally, one week out of the four for the month isn't bad, but hey, we're still excited to talk about the things that did happen this week as we close the book on summer and get ready for a busy fall. I guess we're going to talk about election security. What else does anyone want to talk about? Seems to be the top thing that people want to talk to me about, so let's just keep talking about it. The big story on CyberScoop this week was your talk, Greg, with the VP of security for ESNS, Chris Walashen. You had a lengthy Q&A on all the noise surrounding the election voting technology company, including talking about that snipey letter they sent senators, what they thought of the DEF CON voting village, and the possibility of a vulnerability disclosure program. Greg, this is pretty long. Give us your takeaways. So, yeah, I was actually kind of surprised that they doubled down on their distrust of what went on at DEF CON. Um, I thought that the conversation around what we heard in terms of them just not really trusting the vulnerability researchers that were at the voting village and what they were doing. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I found it a little bit odd that they doubled down on that, but I don't know. It was just a, a very interesting and enlightening interview from the fact that they seem to trust themselves over they trust DEFCON. I'm not sure that the DEFCON um, acolytes are necessarily going to react to that news well. Do you, did it seem like they did their research on the conclusions from DEF CON and just thought they were wrong? I don't necessarily think that they thought they were wrong. I think that they, for whatever reason, don't trust that there are people in the room that aren't being malicious. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, we're talking about 11 and 12 and 16 and 17-year-old kids that were really in the voting village. I mean, I was there for the majority of DEFCON. So I find that trust to, I find their mistrust to be a little bit just off the mark. I, I, I don't buy that at all. I'm just really having trouble wrapping my head around the fact that they seem like the DEFCON voting, voting village is this front for international espionage. I, I just don't see that. Got it. Interesting. So a flawed but crucial program for documenting vulnerabilities has received an unflattering report card from the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which says the program suffers from fluctuating funding and insufficient oversight. Lawmakers addressed the issue Monday in letters sent to DHS, which sponsors the program, and MitreCorps, which maintains it. After a more than year-long investigation into the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposure Database, the committee has recommended a dedicated line item for funding, and the program will now see biennial reviews from DHS and MITRE. Jen, have you ever heard of security researchers complaining about this CVE process before? I honestly haven't, but it really does sound like just MITRE is not giving enough money to maintain this program. Yeah, we talked to a lot of people that deal with the CVE process all over the place, and I know that there have been some really big problems um, over the years with making sure that it's up to date and the right information is on there and also making sure that that information stays the same. I know that they have seen their database 
hacked at uh, a couple times. So I understand the need for more oversight, and I think that everybody will welcome it because I think the CVE process is such an important part of what we talk about when it comes to security research. Definitely. There needs to be more emphasis and more attention paid to it. Yep, more money. So CyberScoop had another interesting Q&A earlier this week. This one was with Craig Williams, who is Director of Security Outreach for Cisco Telos, to get his take on some of these high-quality, high-profile threats and how he approaches the craft of investigating malware campaigns. He also talked about how Telos deals with malware forensics and coordinated vulnerability disclosures. Greg, what were the more enlightening parts of the discussion? So... You know, it was it was funny because we talked to Craig uh, a lot and, you know, we hear so much from him when it comes to things like VPN filter and the Olympic destroyer. And he really gave us some enlightening stuff on how they go about determining not just, you know, how they report their research, but really how they work with law enforcement. And that has been a big topic on CyberScoop. We've covered it multiple times throughout the past couple months and Cisco is no different where it's a case-by-case basis and there are gray lines they have to handle things uh, very very delicately when it comes to this stuff that could cause a lot of problems not just domestically but internationally VPN filter is one that is really really interesting based on the fact that the um, what it was going to do you to Ukraine and possibly other countries as well. Um, and their work with law enforcement really did spurn the the takedown of that. So I implore everybody to go read the conversation that we have with Craig. Craig's a great guy. Uh, the people that we talk to at Cisco Talos always do great things. And this conversation is definitely worth reading about. So, of course, there was also funding news this week. Forgive me if I am pronouncing this wrong. I believe it is Indigy. Uh, Indigy is a company that provides threat detection and mitigation services for industrial control systems, and they raised $18 million in a Series B this week. The company is capitalizing on the heightened sense of urgency over ICS cyber threats, competing with other companies that you've heard about here on Securiosity and CyberScoop, Dragos, Clarity, others. Uh, with offices in New York and Tel Aviv, they boast more than 200 deployments worldwide, and the funding was led by Centrica and OG Tech Ventures. And another company that's easier to pronounce, uh, very good security. Uh, they are a San Francisco startup that offers to handle secure and sensitive customer data. They raised $8.5 million in a Series A funding. Uh, businesses today have to deal with a litany of security requirements, regulations to make sure that hackers don't have easy access to customer data. And VGS is trying to fix that problem by taking on the burden. Uh, they really do this in an interesting way. The company collects and stores client sensitive customer data and its own vaults, vaults is their term, and they swap the data for surrogate values whenever the company needs it. Uh, the CEO said earlier this week the company wants to democratize security so that businesses can focus on what's important to them and actually operate businesses. So uh, Jen, which one of these raises piques your interest more? So I think they're both solving really big problems. Um, you know that I'm partial to sort of the early stage funding, so the Series A guys, so you know, looking at very good technology or very good security, I should say, um, is interesting, right? It's solving that problem for where data is probably the most vulnerable, which is companies that can't afford um, to protect our data as well as some of the bigger companies. But that said, all it does to take this company to fold is one security breach. 
Right, and that was the very interesting thing to me because there were some other articles where they categorized their stuff as unhackable, and we know that that is a a kiss of death. I mean, the minute that you start to see the word unhackable attached to anything, it's really a a big problem, and you sort of paint a really, really big target on yourselves to, um, you know, invite hackers to poke in your stuff, and you're right. the, The minute that they have a hack, I mean, it's over. Yeah, I mean, just based on, you know, what I've read on their website and different articles and stuff, this is a company I probably would have not invested in, just given how probably easy it is to fold it. Yes, and don't get me wrong, we don't want to see them fold or or anything like that. Nobody wants to see a a company (laughs) hacked, especially their third parties. Uh, But I I would just be a a piece of advice. I would be very, very careful about the marketing language that you're using and the unhackable part. I'd get Mm, rid of that with the quickness. So speaking of hacking, an infamous hacking tool is out there still being used even after its most infamous users were arrested by the U.S. The Cobalt Group is aggressively targeting banks in Romania and Russia, according to NetScout's ACERT threat intelligence team. The hackers have gone after the two banks with spear phishing emails that mimic the bank's vendors. A-Search spotted the renewed activity on August 13th, less than two weeks after the Justice Department unsealed the indictment of three alleged FIN7 members from Ukraine. FIN7 has been the most high-profile group to use the tool known as Carbonac, which has been used to steal billions all over the world. Greg, are you surprised? Um, I am not surprised that other groups are using Carbonac. I mean, Carbonac is one of the most potent tools in the world. Uh, the FBI and other law enforcement around the world, Interpol, Europol, they'll they'll tell you the same thing. Um, uh, groups are going to co-opt this and do what they want to do in terms of hitting banks or hotels or anything that Fin7 did. And since Fin7 seems to be uh, on the skids, thanks to the U.S. justice uh, indictment and arrest of the Fin7 group, uh, somebody else is going to take the mantle. I mean, we've also seen this with, it mimics sort of what we've seen from dark web um, marketplaces as well. Once one gets shut down, another takes over. And I think that you're starting to see the same thing here with cybercrime groups. Fin7's gone, so so... So another group is going to swing in and take over and use the tool for whatever it wants. So speaking of banks and financial fraud, that leads us into our interview with NS8's Adam Rogas. But first, we want to make sure all of you save your spot for the nation's largest cybersecurity festival, DC Cyber Week. Join us October 15th through the 19th to network with top cyber experts, participate in 100 plus community events, and collaborate to solve common challenges. Calendar is filling up with events, and we want you all to come be a part of the festivities, so please check out more at dccyberweek.com. Okay, off to Adam. With us today, we've got Adam Rogas, founder and CEO of NS8, a provider of e-commerce security solutions based in Vegas. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you. So tell us about NS8 and how you got your start in cybersecurity. Uh, so NS8 is kind of the culmination of work that I've been doing in the advertising fraud space. And as we started exploring other utilizations of the technology, we just really started to find that uh, you know the tech was applicable to a lot of different segments in the market. And um, fraud prevention, fraud protection services is kind of an offshoot of the cybersecurity space. And as we started making the product more robust, we started including more and more kind of cybersecurity concepts into uh, what we do on a daily basis to track down fraud. 
Yeah, that's really interesting to me because we talk to a lot of cybersecurity companies and they do a lot of technical stuff like threat intelligence mm-hmm. and endpoint protection. So what you're doing really seems like it's in a unique space. And you know, you were talking about the advertising fraud and the order fraud and the reputational issues that come with online storefronts. Can we dive into that a little bit and talk about what each one means and how you approach it and how the products you yeah, have approach it? It's it's funny because you know we always think about it as kind of taking cybersecurity concepts and applying them to kind of revenue protection. Okay. Right? Instead of you know looking at them as purely cybersecurity play, they're for most of the consumers that we surface this to, or most of the consumers that we sell to, the merchants, uh, they look at it and have no idea about cybersecurity. They're thinking about it as, how can I protect myself when I'm purchasing advertising? How can I make myself less of a target? How can I make sure that I don't have chargebacks? How can I protect myself both from automated fraud um, or script-driven script fraud or uh, friendly fraud, where it's actually you know somebody on the other end of the credit card using bad credentials or bad identity okay. information. Um, and so that pretty much kind of covers that aspect of it. But if you asked me to kind of break down the individual categories, so if you think about traffic-based fraud or advertising fraud, uh, it's going to be like if you as an e-commerce merchant or you as a, a vendor as a whole um, are running a campaign and somebody is exploiting the fact that you're paying money into an ad network uh, to pay themselves. And so they'll direct fake traffic at the campaigns that you're running and ultimately siphon uh, dollars out of your ad budget um, directly to them. Okay. And the ad network is an unwilling accomplice kind of in that process. Um, the transactional side is a lot more straightforward. You're using false identity information uh, to perpetrate that you are you know, good for a payment that you're not. Generally, you'll be you know, either shipping goods to yourself or drop shipping them somewhere else and extracting money out of the situation in that, in okay. that way. And then you know, there's a lot of ancillary um, related kind of concepts to that. Uh, when you think about account takeover and things of that nature that affect the e-commerce merchant. But um, our system ultimately tries to get involved much earlier than people that are generally thinking about fraud. Um, so we have a little bit more robust picture of kind of where the exposure is for the customer. You brought up drop shipping there, and that is something that is really, really interesting to me because I'm starting to see that more and more, particularly with regards to like Instagram mm-hmm. merchants. So can you talk to me a little bit about the, the drop selling... Yeah, network and, and how that works and why it's sort of sort of in this like shady limbo sort of e-commerce platform because I've I've bought stuff that I have later learned that it was drop shipped and I'm perfectly fine with it but then I've uh, seen the fraudulent side of that as well so I'm well, kind of wondering how that works into the e-commerce landscape absolutely and in a lot of scenarios there's you know there's nothing necessarily wrong with drop shipping as you kind of mentioned um, in a lot of ways, it's a very easy way for somebody to set up a, a store and get, get get going with it. What's happening, though, is that dropshippers can be exploited the other direction. So um, you have fraudsters that are basically leveraging dropshipping locations to basically exfiltrate product out of the country, okay. um, where it could be then sold and they can extract money out of the fraud process that way. So they're using stolen credentials or stolen credit card numbers to purchase large amounts of high ticket items. And then they're shipping that to endpoints that are just drop, drop shipper addresses that when they get that product, they then drop ship that product out of the country. And so you see um, certain zip codes and certain um, addresses that we see uh, come up all the time at port cities like you know in Miami or in Portland or in um, Seattle where you have high levels of exfiltrating, exfiltrating drop shipping happening um, where people are buying large amounts of, large quantities of product 
sending it to this place and then it's going out of the country and they're reselling it. Interesting. And Interesting. So, yeah. Let's dive a little bit into sort of the ad fraud. So brands lose about what, $19 billion a year in advertising fraud. What is it? Are there multiple types and how does it become fraudulent? Yeah, there, there's a lot of different types of, of ad fraud. Um, and you know, we're really focused. We, we don't really think of ourselves as an ad fraud company. We, we explicitly try not to right. care about the ad delivery process itself. And there's a lot of great companies that kind of work in that space, um, protecting visibility and viewability and things like that. That's really more about the dynamics of the advertiser getting what they paid for, and that's important, but it's not really what we focus on. We focus on the traffic that is from that advertising campaign and ultimately any risk that that traffic may pose. The reasons it would pose risks could be, you know, simple, you know, that is bad traffic and ultimately part of some automated fraud process, uh, but also because um, it can be as simple as you being tricked as a, as a normal user into visiting a site you had no affiliation with. Um, and ultimately that causes the ad network to tag you as somebody who's interested in that product. Well, then the fraudster can simply, you know, through social engineering or through other means, direct you to somewhere that they control. And ultimately that ad network is going to serve you a high value ad because it saw you from before. And it's going to basically pay the, the owner of the site, the fraudster, money from right. that process. And so you see retargeting and remarketing ads all over the internet. If you've ever been to Amazon and put something in your cart and then gone away for a couple of days and now that thing is literally chasing you across the internet. All the time. Is, yep. Yeah, that is basically the system working. The problem is if you do that without verifying the users that are actually qualifying for that success metric, which is putting the item in the cart, uh, you're doing so blindly and you're doing so with a target on your back and it's pretty much one of the most exploitable and easiest ways for a um, fraudster in the ad space to take advantage of, of companies that are really just following best practices. So uh, another version of fraud is I know that chargebacks is a, a really more traditional method of fraud and it's you know a really big way that fraud proliferates. Uh, I get the sense that the number of chargebacks are have been increasing drastically over the past couple so, of years. So why is that? They they definitely have gone up. You which you, you you definitely saw a shift um, to a higher level of chargebacks when you saw the um, chips start showing up okay. in the United States. Okay. Ultimately, fraudsters were going to what was easiest, and ultimately, then not saying that the chip is the best solution in the world, but it made it a slightly harder. And so you saw a shift of fraudulent transactions shift to, you know, card not present transactions. Card not present, uh, which is commonly what happens on the internet, has always been kind of more risky than um, the standard brick and mortar card present transactions. So um, it's definitely gone up. Um, it hasn't gone up, it, it hasn't exploded necessarily, okay. but it's a huge problem. Um, there was a research study a couple of months ago done that the cost of fraud was actually one for every one dollar is about three dollars in real cost by the time you dealt with uh, the issues around restocking, the issues around your loss in product, and ultimately all of the fees that, ult that result from that chargeback. Um, you know, I mean, in a lot of cases, that fee and the number of chargebacks is the thing that really affects the business. Uh, they might have margin, but if their merchant account doesn't do, does not want to deal with the fact that they've got that level of chargeback activity, uh, they can find themselves without a merchant account. Without a merchant account, they can't conduct business. So let's go back to something that you talked about there with the, the chip and the advent of the chip. And I, I remember when the chip was coming more online in America, everybody said, well, 
just fraud's just going to move to those where you don't need the chip Absolutely. at all. Absolutely, it's like is, a leaky bucket. It's going to go out the biggest hole. Right. So how do we close that leak in that bucket? Is it to adopt the chip and pin that is elsewhere in the world? And if it isn't, is there anything that's ever going to come to the masses in America where you're going to have something that is concrete and safe and built into the card? Well, what's interesting is that you start to think about risk shift, right? Okay. And risk shift in in who ultimately is responsible for those chargebacks. Right now, the you know, there's various people throughout the the value chain that are responsible for chargebacks. I think um, one of the things that's interesting about digital currency is that there is no you know, once digital currency is spent, there is no path back. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the ACH. There's really no path back from um, that transaction happening. Uh, there's people that say that that is a more secure system because ultimately you're dealing with just protecting the ability to hold on to that. And if you're transacting sales in, in the currency, you're, you know, you're fine. Um, it, it's, it's going to take a lot. I mean, I think that that one of the things that, that, that is complicated is that there are so many different ways to essentially pay for something. Um, there's so, and that each one of them have their own kind of chain of responsibility. And, and at some point, if there is fraud in that chain, a different party is responsible for it. So you either go back to the bank and the bank stands behind it, or it goes all the way back to the merchant where the merchant didn't do enough to, to secure it. And ultimately, in today's market, in today's world, the merchant bears a huge brunt of, of this problem. Um, and so, you know, from our standpoint, all we want to do is try to really help them segment the risk that they're under and provide them the most information so they can make a valued decision when determining whether or not they want to ship a product and thus expose themselves to that. Interesting. Interesting. So, I know that you got some funding recently and I know Jen wanted to talk to you about that. So, let's, let's hear all about it. Sure. So, last year you raised an egg geared towards growth and... Um, North America, Western Europe, and India. Is there sort of a different strategy with each of these markets? There absolutely is. We actually raised a seed. A seed, um, sorry. Was, was a, no, that's fine. <laughs> Everybody has different names for it. It was a large seed. So um, ultimately, uh, we view um, the U.S. and North American market um, is, you know, the, the, the strategy we're going after there has largely been revolved around partnering with people that are already working in the ecosystems around the platforms that we service. I know there was a lot of words there, but basically we service e-commerce software and they have- Like a Shopify. Like Shopify, Magento, BigCommerce, WooCommerce. And they, they have networks of developers and system integrators and companies that already work building software or building websites for these platforms. And our go-to-market with this in this space was to really go out and work with these, these partners um, to, to deliver our services. There's a lot of smaller platforms in Europe and in Southeast Asia that don't have that ecosystem. And so if you tried to run the same plan, it wouldn't work. You have to go from more of a top-down. We kind of call our approach in the U.S. kind of a middle-up and a middle-down approach. Um, you really have to go for a top-down distribution in, in the other parts of the world because I think, um, you, because first of all, you can't. Uh, secondly, because you're never going to capture, um, it, you know, it's like boiling the ocean. You're never going to capture that many customers um, trying to just sell without a directed focus on it. So you really need to go to the platforms themselves and, you know, drive the sale down from the top. So with your work in Western Europe specifically, how has GDPR affected your relationship with customers? It absolutely has. And there was a lot of confusion for customers um, around GDPR when 
you know, when it was being enacted and right as it was coming online. Um, you know, we definitely, from the very beginning, have siloed kind of all of our data um, and tried to leverage uh, the fact that we, you know, were building a product from the ground up in a era when we knew GDPR was coming. Uh, there's a lot of legacy products out there that just really had a hard time uh, dealing with some of the requirements. Uh, as a fraud tool, uh, we're in an interesting position. We're, um, we're we base. There are some things that we don't have to worry about, whereas you know, a standard data controller would have to worry about. Um, and so, and a lot of it comes down to you know, if you're a fraudster and you ask me to forget you, um, that's not exactly. <laughs> it doesn't exactly kind of align with the business model of rating somebody's. Um, threat level okay. from, from, from a fraud standpoint. And so uh, there's certain aspects and certain data that we're allowed to keep um, and, you know, obviously personally identifiable information, you know, and, and if we were going to be selling that is something that we're, we're not allowed to. But uh, for the most part, we've been able to segment and kind of silo our data um, in the areas that it was needed. And uh, it's, it's been a process for sure. Have you also been able to educate your customers that are using your services on how to sort of reconfigure their data or their processes in order to we get online with GDPR we and be compliant. Really, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complex, it's a fairly complex um, bit of legislation. I mean, if you look at it, um, every single provider in the value, in, in any part of the chain has to comply with the ability to, you know, remove people's personally identifiable information on demand. Uh, it, you have to, um, you know, you, you basically have to disclose how you're going to leverage that data, how you're going to use it. Um, and so for us, you know, in these, in these environments with these platforms, there's lots of plugins, there's lots of other, um, you know, other scenarios and, and lots of players at the, at the table that now these, you know, new e-commerce merchants have to now manage this fairly complex framework. And so um, a lot of work's been done by the platforms themselves to kind of manage that, to kind of educate, uh, because ultimately they're the ones that are kind of brokering the communication between all these different different plugins. And so, you know, we've done work to support the, the platforms in that, but aren't really um, addressing it head on because ultimately, um, you know, on one hand, we don't, we can't disclose exactly what we're collecting. Um, you know, because that's part of the process that we're able to use for detection purposes. But secondly, um, you know, because there's so much more exposure in other types of products than ours, um, the platforms are largely bearing the brunt of it. So from a consumer perspective, what could I be doing to um, prevent credit card being used fraudulently or um, my order being held up and flagged as fraudulent? So there's a lot of scenarios, a lot of credit cards provide um, you know, the ability to have online-only numbers um, that you can use and you can leverage that so that you can specifically use a specific number with a specific merchant. So if there's a breach, that merchant, the exposure there with your personally identifiable payment information um, is limited to that specific merchant. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's t t being diligent about where you're, you're using your, your information. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy and it's generational. Um, but the belief of, of, you know, what I care about protecting versus what, you know, some of my younger employees care about protecting versus what my parents care about protecting is vastly different. And, you know, to, to some extent, um, you just have to really, really be careful about where you actually use 
um, use your data, who you're giving it to, and, and how freely you're consenting to it. Um, you know, the controls are out there. It's just there's a lot of um, people don't talk about them because they complicate and, and make things that are fairly straightforward and easy a slightly more complex. Changing gears a little bit and talking about your actual business and, and yeah. your setup as a startup, I'm curious as to why you chose to set up shop in Vegas. I know your headquarters is in Arlington, but then you have this wonderful Vegas office when a lot of other startups, when they tend to move west coast, we all know where they go. They go a little bit more west of, of Vegas. So kind of talk to me about well, yeah, working no. in this ecosystem. This was, uh, th this, this happened, it was a, definitely evolutionary for us. I mean, when I moved to the D.C. area, uh, I was fairly convinced I was going to move, move my whole family there. I was going to, you know, basically stay there. And, you know, as the business evolved and as we um, raised money, the first money that we raised was out of the D.C. area. There's a, a great ecosystem there of, of early investors, especially in cybersecurity, and uh, that really understand the space. And, of course, programs like Mach 37 and CIT. Um, you know, we were, we were convinced we were going to be in that area for the life of the company okay. as a kind of primary location. And as the business evolved, we hired an individual in the Miami location, Miami because that was one, where one of our partners was located Okay. Um, and kind of grew up that, that location for sales and alliances. And that was a great location for us because we were able to service North and South America. Everyone uh, was bilingual and, and, and had, you know, a really great location for you to basically do that kind of support. And as we got funded, we thought about our second location. Um, and we were like, okay, let's, you know, put one on the West Coast because we didn't want to have two locations on the East Coast. And, um, you know, we started talking to people in California. We started talking to mayors of cities that were looking to incentivize us to, you know, put up shop in, you know, Long Beach or other, other cities in California. And, uh, you know, in, in looking and, and kind of doing some exploratory work here, we just couldn't beat the, um, the value that, um, that presented itself for here for, for a large location. Um, you know, our, our, our cost per square foot is incredibly low here. Um, like multiples lower than it would be in California. Okay. Multiple lower, multiples lower than it would be in the D.C. area. Um, you know, our average cost of employees about, you know, versus California and versus the Bay Area is probably um, almost three times less. Okay. Uh, so that's significant. Um, as you're trying to scale up a business, especially in the early stages, um, that really, really matters. And so it's allowed us to scale effectively and efficiently. Um, you know, we have five locations now. We've got a location in Las Vegas, we've got a location in Miami, uh, we've got a location in uh, Detroit, Michigan, which we basically is a, a development area for us. Okay. Uh, developers, and it's, you know, that's a great area for us because there's a lot of education around the area. And again, it's a relatively inexpensive labor market and housing market. Um, and then we have a WeWork location in Amsterdam, and we're standing one up in Singapore. Okay. And so um, all of the locations we we're at have been fairly cost-effective for us. Uh, the advent of things like WeWork and, and the flexibility of office space uh, that it provides have, has really made going into new locations a little bit less scary from a sunk cost standpoint. And so uh, that's that we ended up here based off of the ability to hire talent was really no worse than it is in Southern California. Our ability to recruit talent out of the um, you know, tax situation that California has become um, was also very high. And so, um, 
for us, it, it just kind of made sense. So we like to end this on a random question. Sure. So you live in Vegas. Do you ever crash conference parties? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Uh, you just have to go to a club early and basically stay. <laughs> what was what was the best conference party that you've crashed? The best conference party that I've crashed? Um, it was probably not a party. It was probably not a conference that I was going to. It was probably a magic party. They have a, uh, uh, not a magician's party, but a party for the magic uh, clothing. Uh, there's a magic clothing convention that was, that was in town. Okay. Is in town. Wait, and what's magic clothing? Yeah, well, yeah. magician clothing? No, 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 no. It's, it was a convention called Magic, and I'm not even sure if it's still in town, but uh, it was basically the entire clothing industry. Uh, okay. Okay. And they would take, I mean, it was like CES for clothes. They would take over <laughs> everything. Okay. And, um, you know, they had some amazing, ridiculous parties. Like, they would, you know, bring in, like, you know, just like four or five bands into the same party. Nice. Uh, just take the whole thing over. And, you know, the whole town pretty much goes goes crazy. Um that's that's probably the uh, the the most PG thirteen version of, of, of <laughs> okay. The that are okay. There's some very interesting conventions. It's it's Vegas. Yeah. I mean, what 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 can you say? Um, no, CES for clothing. Interesting. Yeah. Never heard of it. And now very intrigued. Gonna yeah. gonna check that out. Adam, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Jen, that was a really interesting interview. We talk all the time about the weak spot in cyber when it comes to small and medium-sized businesses, and it sounds like Adam and NS8 are in a sweet spot there. And if you want to go through Mach 37 like Adam did with NS8, applications are open for our Cybersecurity Accelerator. Definitely get in touch with Jen. Mach 37 does a great job and can connect you with the people that you need to be connected to in order to grow your business. Okay, everyone, we will be back next week. As always, stay curious.